Hear the word of our Lord from Genesis chapter 2, beginning in the 22nd verse. In the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. Hear the word of our Lord again from Genesis chapter 1, beginning in the 28th verse. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Over the course of this sex and marriage series, we've gotten into some of the practicals, the do's and don'ts, the how-to's, the how-to-nots. We've gone over so many practical matters, and so many issues of sin, or doing the right thing, that I figure it's time to speak about the thing in and of itself. What is sex? We never really ask this question because on one level everybody knows what it is. Bumping uglies, or as Marcus Aurelius so lovingly put it, a violent convulsion followed by the expelling of a glob of mucus. Yes, there are gross ways to put it, and so long as our society and surrounding culture are worldly, they will never see past the mere physical act and base human urges. However, when the Bible talks about sex, it doesn't just dwell on the physical. There is so much going on with the act of coitus and the life of marriage that it contributes to that descriptions of what sex is based on the phenomenon, the physical things involved with sex, come up short. It doesn't bring up motivations. It does not bring up the spiritual life. It doesn't bring up the human soul, as it were, and how we are in our nature. So let's correct that. It's important for us to understand all of this because if you don't know what sex is, you will always be confused as to why there is such thing as sexual sin. What do I mean by that? Well, why is fornication wrong? Why is homosexuality wrong? Why is rape wrong? If we look at sex as just a physical act, and we don't look at it for what it actually is, we're always going to think God just made commandments willy-nilly because he had a certain way he wanted things to go, and like you going off that reservation just offends him for some reason, and it's all arbitrary. What gives? Why can't we have so-called freedom? So let's talk about what sex is in the eyes of God, how he designed it, and why. First, yes, our Roman Catholic listeners are happy to verify that indeed sex makes babies. 
Sex has a procreative purpose to it designed by God. When God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, that does not happen without sex. Now we understand that this is a phenomenon. Sex is how you make babies. A sperm fertilizes an egg, which then becomes a fetus upon conception, and that child grows in his or her mother's womb until a baby is born. But that does not explain the why of it. God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heaven, etc. and so forth. God wants mankind to make more of mankind so that the earth is tended to. It is evident that Adam was not supposed to just stay in the Garden of Eden tending to various plants and naming animals for all of eternity. The idea was for all of the earth to be tended by us as the stewards of creation. That does not happen without more of us, so sex is a vehicle for the creation of more human beings. But that cannot be all it is. If we rely on natural theology and say this is a result of this particular activity and therefore that is what that activity is restricted to, that ignores the rest of what the Bible says on the topic. To say that sex is only for procreation is to fall into a similar trap that the world falls into. See, our dominant culture, the world, the enemy of the Christian church, looks at the phenomenon of sex, the act of coitus, what people enjoy doing, and says, ah, that is the purpose. Sex is for pleasure. So, too, have various scholastic theologians seen the act of sex, seen the consequence of it, that is, children being born, and they have said, ah, that is what the sexual act is for, and nothing else, by the way, you should have literally no other sexual activity than that which results in a child. Just like the world, our scholastic theologians have mixed up description with prescription through what I believe to be a misuse of natural theology. They're not paying attention to everything the word says about it. But yes, we will say, from the get-go, sex is supposed to make babies. But sex is not just for babies. As Adam declares, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So, the sexual act is a cleaving, a reunion between a man and his other half, his wife. Regarding divorce, our Lord Jesus says, What God has brought together, let not man separate. We cannot forget that it was God who took man and turned him into man and woman in the Garden of Eden, took out his rib fashioned a woman for him to be his wife and his helper, and then in the act of coitus and in the life of marriage, these two that were taken apart from one man 
are brought back together again to form one human unit. So the purpose of sex is not just procreation. It is not merely the act of procreation. It is also the knitting together of two lives into one, so that both may be whole. Anybody with a good marriage can tell you that the best sex that you will ever have is the kind where you can't quite tell where you begin and when your spouse ends. You are that close. It feels like you are one being together because indeed as married spouses with that union that is what you are but there's a problem with that if i see sex as just a vehicle for procreation i am looking at natural theology and phenomena and i'm trying to form a theology out of it if i just look at man and his wife coming together in the act of coitus and becoming one flesh together, I'm looking at consequences again. And now I'm not really looking at the definition of sex, I'm just looking at the results of the act. So we continue searching in Holy Scripture for what sex is, and we arrive at the Song of Solomon, which declares how pleasurable it is, how enjoyable it is, the intimacy that a man and his wife enjoy together. Yes, we all understand sex is fun. Sex is enjoyable. Sex gives us nice fluttery heart feelings and hormones that make us feel even more in love than we first kissed. Yes, sex is great. We all enjoy it. If I say that the purpose of sex is just procreation, throw the Song of Solomon out of the Bible. Just do it. Go ahead. Declare it uncanon. Go against the inspired word of God and say, lights out missionary position, a sheet between the man and his wife, or something. Come on, no. The Song of Solomon exists. Sex is enjoyable, and the Bible endorses that aspect of it from Song of Solomon chapter 7. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter! Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. If we, in unison with a bunch of goober theologians in the church's history, declare that the Song of Solomon is nothing more than an allegory about the relationship between Christ and his church, I must ask the question, does this mean that Jesus thinks dirty thoughts about the church? Because this is some extremely sensual language. I'm not going to say that. That's ugliness. No, this is celebrating real marriage. It is celebrating the rejoicing and the fun that a man and his wife have. While somebody might be scandalized and they could claim, oh, no, we don't want to be all about the flesh here, the fact of the matter is, 
most people have sexual feelings and the act of sex in marriage is the proper outlet for it and we are told to go ahead and enjoy to our heart's content provided that it is not involving sin marriage should be a sexual free-for-all between a man and his wife have fun do it often that's what saint paul tells us in first corinthians chapter 7 but we can't just define sex according to the reasons that most people have sex that is the flesh pulling us toward one another and the fun that we have from sexual sensations that like natural theology's attempt at explaining the purpose behind it or the definition of it like those who just see the union aspect of it is still taking an action and the things that result from that and claiming that that is your definition it is not that is not what the bible says that sex is oh but what if we go to malachi and we look at the covenantal aspect the prophet writes from malachi chapter 2 beginning in the 13th verse this second thing you do you cover the lord's altars with tears with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand but you say why does he not because the lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless though she is your companion and your wife by covenant ah so marriage is a covenant and as we see with all covenants in holy scripture you have an agreement between two parties and like the law in exodus there is a covenant ratification a confirmation of everything this is why there is a feast held with god when the children of israel confirm the covenant with our lord so sex becomes a covenant confirmation this is why there is a consummation of the wedding on the wedding night this is why people continue to have sex because there is covenant renewal it is a continued declaration that you are in covenant with your wife and here we begin to see why sexual sins are just that if a man and his wife refuse to ever do anything that could lead to the creation of a child they are likely in sin depending on the circumstances of course if a man reading first corinthians chapter 7 sees that his pregnant wife still needs intimacy and he needs intimacy from her and they have the marital act in their bedroom while she was pregnant that is not going to result in another baby she's not going to get double pregnant but they have not sinned and there's a whole host of other circumstances where it's perfectly fine but i digress sex that is done outside the bounds of marriage is fornication it lacks that covenantal aspect a man is not taking responsibility for the woman whom he has humbled whom he has made one with himself that's bad don't let anybody ever tell you that the act of fornication constitutes marriage no there is a union there but there is not a covenant therefore leading to more and more broken people hence fornication being a dire sin 
And of course, as all acts of marriage and sex are between a man and a woman, it should stay in that heterosexual sphere. Otherwise, it is going contrary to the will, declaration, and commandments of God. Therefore, it must be between a man and his wife within the confines of marriage. We see with the consequences and the phenomena of sex why there is such thing as sexual sins. But even if we look at the covenantal aspect of sex, that it is a confirmation and a renewal of the covenant between a man and his wife, that is a use for sex. That is a result of it. That is a purpose for it. But it is not the thing in and of itself. And that leads us to ask, what is sex according to the Bible? All of the answers that we've given here are observations, how people use sex, the fruit of sex, namely children, and the uh, law-based aspect of sex where it binds two people together both metaphysically and in their dedicated covenantal relationship with each other. But none of that tells us what it is. So we have to look to the scriptures and ask ourselves, just what is this? Because we can't define it based on what people do. We can't define it based on the fruit of it. What is it in God's eyes? And I submit to you something that might sound a little speculative, but I think this is the best definition that we're going to get. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. That is Genesis 1 verse 27. Mankind had the righteousness of God in the Garden of Eden. This is properly understood to be the real Imago Dei. But that means that everything that man has that is analogous to God in a certain sense is for a divine purpose. If you have the righteousness of God, then your potency, your ability to do things, reflects and gives glory to God's omnipotence. Your ability to learn, your ability to gather knowledge, reflects and gives glory to God's omniscience. Mankind is present, God is omnipresent, and so on and so forth. We are supposed to reflect God's nature as living icons. Now that said, the issue with losing that righteousness in the Garden of Eden means that all of those things that God created in you, the way that he made you and I, becomes something else, just corrupt. Mankind's ability to act becomes just that. We can do stuff. It is not geared towards being an image bearer of God. Sinful things and sinful capabilities on behalf of mankind when he is fallen does not reflect the Imago Dei. But something that is baked into the cake of humanity when created male and female is that we do reflect the Trinity in more than one way, of course, but let's take a look at a critical aspect of the Trinity that often gets overlooked. 
our Lord Jesus says in John 14, verse 11, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Hmm. So Christ is God. He is the Logos. He is one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Yes, but he's also in the Father, and the Father is in him in a certain sense. Well, this has puzzled theologians in the church fathers in the past. But when we look at John 17, verse 21, he continues saying something very similar. He says, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There is a mysterious aspect to the union of the persons of the Trinity. If we look at John 5.17, my Father is working until now, and I am working John 5:19 Truly truly I say to you the son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does that the son does likewise there must be something in the trinity that explains how they are bonded together these three persons and how we can say that each member of the trinity is fully god while not taking away from the divine status of the other persons of the Trinity, and to still say that there is one God. The word for this kind of union, this blurring at the edges of the persons of God, is what we would call perichoresis. Now, I didn't make that up. Here is John Theodore Mueller in his Christian Dogmatics volume on the doctrine of God. By the term perichoresis, or immanentia, immanentio, circumincessio, is understood the mutual and most intimate inherence by which one person, on account of the unity of the divine essence, is within another, John 14, 11, and 17, verse 21. By this term, the Christian church precludes the error of regarding the three persons as subsisting separately alongside one another. By the term equality, Christian theology expresses the fact that one divine person is in himself not greater than another, and by the term sameness, that the three persons have the same nature, and consequently also cooperate in the same opera ad extra, John 5, 19 and 17. Perichoresis has been uh, unfortunately named, uh, because of the implications, the interpenetration of the persons in the Trinity. And I know we all snicker like schoolgirls hearing interpenetration because it makes it sound like the members of the Trinity are having sex with one another, but that is obviously not the case. Sex is how mankind expresses this aspect of the Imago Dei. And there's your definition for theologically what sex is is sex is the human expression of perichoresis interpenetration of persons hear me out god is omnipotent mankind is potent god is omniscient mankind is scient mankind can learn god is omnipresent man is present 
God is one being, three persons, sharing Godhood, being connected through the interpenetration of perichoresis, man becomes one with one other person, his spouse, sharing a life, sharing a flesh, sharing essence with one another in expression of the Trinity. Now you might notice a man and his wife, that's two people. So a third is made, a child is made. Procreation comes out of that perichoresis. For believers who are regenerate, who have recovered by the grace of God, the image of God, sex takes on a whole new purpose. While the rest of the world is chasing after other aspects and things around sex, Oh, procreation. Oh, covenant. Oh, pleasure. The things that surround sex but don't define it because it lacks the image of God and his righteousness applied to it. We are free from that as believers. Our marital acts are free. And thus we enjoy the whole package as it were. Perichoresis resulting in the creation of a human child. Perichoresis leading to the union, one flesh. Perichoresis making a covenant that is strong between two people who otherwise are completely unrelated. Now they are one and that bond, that marriage contract is strong. And of course in expressing the image of God more fully, far more enjoyable and pleasurable than it would be if it was just rote animalistic banging. It is for this reason that being made in the image of God is very, very important to our sex lives as married men and women. If you did not have the recovered image of God, if you were not regenerate, then I don't care what sexual activity you're doing or in what context, chances are 99.999% of the time that's sin because it does not actually express what God made it for. Now that said, I understand there are carve-outs for a various edge cases, like one spouse being a believer, the other spouse not being a believer. Uh, the non-believing spouse has some sort of sanctification where it's still okay for them to come together. St. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians, but the point still stands. Sex is an expression of perichoresis between human beings provided that they are in the image of God, if that is who they are in Christ Jesus. And a man and his wife are supposed to enjoy that frequently. And this is one of the reasons I believe the church has no business telling spouses only for procreation or only with the lights off or something like that. No, this is meant for a man and his wife to enjoy as part of being in the image of God. Again, provided they're believers. If non-believers are doing it, well, who cares? Chances are it's sin anyway. But that said, I bring all of this up because sex is crucial in the Sex and Marriage series for helping to preserve 
a marriage, and we need to talk about what it is before we get into the chief benefits that it gives us in marriage. But we will get to that next week. Until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.